I know that for uh, the, the great majority of people coming up here and, and, and sharing um, is, really, is really difficult. I know that it was for Gina. It is for Gina. Um, but uh, she decided a, a few weeks back that, hey, whatever the Lord is, is trying to do in me, whatever he's calling me to do, uh, I just want to take a step of faith. And it was really hard for her to commit to doing that. But she said, um, if that's what God wants me to do, I'm going to do it. And she did it. And it's going to give her the strength spiritually to be able to do hard things in the future. Amen? Amen. Can you look to someone and say, let's obey God. And look to someone else and say, okay. I don't know if you've ever uh, asked this question to anybody, anytime, anywhere, but if you ever asked this question, what are you doing? You ever asked that to somebody? Uh, yeah, I know that. <laughs> uh, I know that this is a, a common question that arises on the lips of parents, like, what are you doing? This is kind of our it's the right that we have as parental figures, as authority figures, to ask our children what we're doing. I, I was trying to think of some of the times where I've asked my children, hey, what are you doing? I remember when our oldest, Manny, was our only one. She was about probably two or three years old, and she got a hold of, of chapstick, and she really loved the smell of strawberry chapstick, and she loved it so much that she thought she could eat it, and so she was eating chapstick. We caught her eating it. We said, what are you doing uh, she had chapstick in her mouth. It smelled good, so I figured it would taste good. So we said, what are you doing? I don't know if you've ever asked that to your children or if you've ever eaten chapstick before. There's another time where um, she was probably around the same age, and Grandpa had planted this beautiful tree with uh, flowers that were starting to blossom. They were beautiful flowers, and she thought they were beautiful also. And so she started picking all of the flowers off of the trees and held them in a bouquet. I said, no, Manny, what are you doing? Grandpa's going to get so mad. My father-in-law's going to beat me. This is going to be terrible. And she knew that she had done something that was uh, not so good, and so she tried to put them back on the branches, which didn't work. What are you doing, Manny? Have you ever asked somebody that question? I would sometimes see our little one, Elise. She loves playing bubbles and bubble baths and things like that. And a lot of times she's not allowed to take bubble baths, so she wants to make her own bubble playtime. And so uh, we would catch her. She's been in the bathroom for a really long time. Like, what is she doing? And we'll go in there and she'll like close the door on us and be all suspicious looking. And she has pumped all of this hand soap into the sink and plugged the sink and turned on the water. And she's like throwing bubbles all everywhere. It's on the mirror, all over the floor. Like, what are you doing? There are times where, just to be an equal opportunity, outer of my children, uh, Elijah, there would be times where it's somebody's birthday, we're like, Elijah, come, let's sing, the cake is coming, let's go sing for your friend, or sing for your auntie, sing for your uncle, or sing for whoever it is, and, and he runs over and he blows out the candles while we're still singing. Like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know if you've had times like that where you ask that question, what are you doing? doing. The reason we ask that, there's kind of a subtext beneath that question. The subtext is, I know better than you, okay? I know better than you, and so if you're not doing what I think you ought to be doing, then you need to realign your life so that your life begins to look the way I think it ought to look. That's what it means when we ask that question, what are you doing? We know what they're doing. We're just saying, you need to stop doing that and do something that I think you ought to be doing. Question is, have you ever asked that question to God? God, what are you doing? This is not, obviously, this is not the way my life is supposed to go right now, God. Things are not going well. There's people that are, things I've been praying for for a long time, and they're not, actually, they haven't been answered. They're, in fact, they're getting worse. God, what are you doing? These are, these are situations that I've been committing to for the longest time, and I've been working hard, and it should look different than the way that it does now. God, what are you doing? Have you ever asked God those questions? I've been praying for a job. I've been praying for a husband. I've been praying for a wife. I've been praying for direction. I've been praying for fine. Whatever it might be, have you ever asked that question? God, what are you doing? Because beneath that question is a deeper reality that we think we know what God ought to be doing, and when he's not showing up the way that we think he ought to be showing up, we feel we have the right to demand of God something that he does not deem to be the best thing for us in this present moment. 
what are you doing, God? Have you ever asked that question? And if you've asked that question, then the second question you probably asked is, if you're not pulling through for me, God, then is it worth it for me to live for you? Is it worth it for me to live a life of faith in the midst of a world in which so many people are not living for God? Is it worth it for me to continue living for you? Is it worth it to keep on trusting you, keep on doing the right thing, keep on being faithful when it seems like everyone else is being faithless? Is it worth it to stand up and say there's no God like Jehovah when it seems like Every other person is bowing to the gods and the idols of this world. Is it worth it, God? And if it is, then what are you doing? I think these are questions that at some level I'm sure we have asked. I know I have in my moments of honesty, in my moments of questioning, in my moments of pain, in my moments of disappointment. And maybe if we're honest with ourselves this morning, some of us are asking these questions as we come in to the worship of God today. I would imagine that in some way these are questions that the people of Israel, people of God in the Persian Empire were asking. God, we've been trying to be faithful, or maybe they weren't being faithful, but here's the reality. In 11 months, this is where we are in Scripture in Esther 6, in 11 months, the people of God are going to be killed, wiped out because of a kill order given by the Persian Empire to destroy and to kill all of the Jews in the empire. And the question that they must be asking is, God, what are you doing? Is it worth it for us to continue to live this way? And as we get to Esther chapter 6, what happened last week is that there was one person on earth who had the power to do something about it, and it was the queen of Persia, Esther, who was hiding the fact that she was actually a Jew. And so at the risk of her life, because you cannot enter into the presence of the king unsummoned, at the risk of her life, she asked for an audience with the king, and by the grace and the mercy of God, she was granted mercy. And so the king looked at her <clears throat> after she'd been fasting for three days. The king looked at her in that weakened state and said, what is it that you want? And she said, I just want you to come to a dinner party, just a dinner party. You and Haman, the one who wanted to kill all, my, all the Jews, I just want to invite you guys to dinner. So they come to dinner, and while they're drunk, the king is drunk, he says, so what is it that you wanted me to do for you? And she said, here's what I want. Okay, here's what I want. I would like for you to come to another dinner tomorrow. The two of you, King Xerxes and the vice president, the prime minister, the regent, whatever it is, the second in command, Haman, I would like for the two of you guys to come and join me at dinner. And so they go. Haman is super excited. Super excited because as he goes home, he knows that no one else has had an audience with the king and the queen alone. It's just him. He knows that he's second in command in the Persian Empire. So he goes home skipping on cloud nine until he sees Mordecai. Mordecai, his ancient enemy, the one who did not give him respect, did not bow to him, whose the anger aroused because of Mordecai causing him to say, not only Mordecai, but all of their people I want to kill. This Mordecai's hanging out at the king's gates where he always hangs out, and Mordecai still refuses to give Haman his props. So Haman goes home, and he's angry, angry. And he tells his wife and his buddies, he's like, dude, I just hung out with the, ki with the king and queen. Like, everything is awesome except for the fact that this stinking little mosquito named Mordecai keeps on biting me, keeps on bugging me, and I got to wait 11 months before I kill him. They're like, dude, you're, the, you're, you're second in command of the king. Just... Why don't you do this? Build a gallows. Make a gallows, okay? That's like this big thing where, uh, with, with spears where you would impale people, right? Spear people and leave them hanging. It was the precursor to crucifixion. Kill Haman on that. You know, don't wait 11 months. Ask the king tomorrow morning. Ask him tomorrow morning if you could just get rid of Mordecai because he's being insubordinate to you. Just ask the king tomorrow morning. And he says, that's a great idea. And so that night, Haman goes to sleep for the first time in a while, excited and happy that come morning, he will have the execution edict given so that he could get rid of Mordecai from his life. Esther chapter 6, then, is where we come this morning. Esther chapter 6, we're going to read uh, verses 1 until the end. So while Haman is sleeping, while Esther is sleeping, while everyone is sleeping, chapter 6, verse 1, that night... The king, Xerxes, could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. 
it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigdana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Hmm. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Uh, nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. King answered, uh, what, what the, who, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai and the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, hey, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, hmm. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn. And a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested. For Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate, wow, do not neglect anything you've recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, hey, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall is started, is of Jewish origin, you ain't going to stand against him. You're surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> this is God's word. Man, this is crazy. Uh, maybe only to me. This is like wild. Isn't this like anyone feeling this like cosmic twist, plot twist level? My, this is insane. So what do you do? What do you do? Mordecai has no idea. He has no idea any of this stuff, right? All, as of now, he's just, he just chilling. All he knows, he's going to bed that night. He has no idea that his life hangs in the balance. He has no idea that come morning, Haman, who's got the power in the land, is going to ask for Mordecai's execution. Mordecai has no idea. He just goes to bed that night. What do you do? Okay, because Mordecai, we haven't seen all that much of him. But what do you do when you're living in Persia, you're a child of God, you're a child of faith, living in a world that is hostile to the life of God in you? What do you do? Well, I think there's a couple of truths when you wonder, is it worth it? There's a couple of truths that I want to kind of draw out from here and help you to know in order that we can find strength to continue to live for God. Here's the first thing, that God remembers you even though others have forgotten God remembers you. God remembers what you've done even when others have forgotten, even when everyone else has forgotten. So rewind back to chapter 2. I don't know if you remember this, but it kind of makes, uh, makes reference to it in chapter 6 in the first verses. Mordecai was hanging out at the king's gate where he overhears this conversation between a guy named Big Thana and Teresh, and these two people are the secret security, they're the secret service detail for the king. Basically, they're the bodyguards. No one enters into the presence of the king unless they say it's cool to do that. Now, they have a plot because we have access to the king. They say, let's assassinate the king. And Mordecai hears that. So he's got this dilemma. He says, do I do something about it? I mean, after all, King Xerxes, he's wicked. He's evil. He slept with all of these virgin girls, and he took my adopted daughter, pretty much, my niece, and made her the queen, but he doesn't even give her the time of day. What does he, what does he do? Well, Babylon, uh, when they were living in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah said, seek the welfare of the city to which you've been called. Be the best citizen that you can. And so he knows that his moral responsibility is to say something about the assassination plot. 
And so he tells Esther, Esther tells the king, the king does his due diligence, and they find that indeed there was an assassination plot, and so these two get killed, they get executed. Now, the way that transitions of power happened in empires of the day, it wasn't through an election, you know that. It's not a democratic society like it is here. The way you become king is if you kill the king, <laughs> then you become the king. It was through assassination, it was through, uh, it was through uh, insubordination within the palaces, through things like that, through war. That's how transitions of power happen. And so there are constantly threats on the life of the king. And so whenever someone snuffed out or protected or saved the life of a king in Persia, they they were honored generously, and they were honored immediately. So the, the Jewish uh, historian Herodotus talks about how um, this one guy saved the brother of King Xerxes, and immediately he was made the governor of, uh, of an area. Right? He was made a governor. Another uh, captain of, 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 of ships uh, was commissioned to help Xerxes fight in a battle against fight in a war against Greece and was uh, awarded with islands and lands and things like that. And so these were the things that were given to people who protected the interests of the king. So here's Mordecai. He doesn't just save the brother. He doesn't just fight in a war. He saves the king's life. And so Xerxes owes his very life to Mordecai. So what will be done to the man who saves the life of the king. That's the question we're asking as we finish up chapter 2. Chapter 3 rolls around, and Xerxes knows he needs a bodyguard. He needs someone to protect him who is loyal. And so you know that this royal promotion is coming. Everyone thinks it's going to be Mordecai, but it's not. It's Haman, the Agagite of the sworn enemies of the people of God. If you're reading this as a Jewish person, you're like, God, what in the world are you doing? This makes no sense. You've got the wrong guy. Last week I was <clears throat> having coffee with somebody and we we're just talking, catching up on their lives. And, um, and they were just saying, hey, they're, they're talking about a sermon that I preached recently. And he said, yeah, you, you uh, were quoting C.S. Lewis. Okay, C.S. Lewis, who is uh, a theologian par excellence. He's the man, right, C.S. Lewis. He's, but, but what he said was, yeah, in your sermon you're quoting Lewis C.K. a lot. <laughs> The difference between C.S. Lewis and Louis C.K., okay, C.S. Lewis is an A-grade theologian. <laughs> Louis C.K. is an R-rated comedian, right? These are two very different people. So I said, no, 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 you've got the two people mixed up. Don't get these two mixed up. They're very different. Don't go around saying, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of Louis C.K. That would get you in trouble. You got the people mixed up. That's what the people of God are thinking as they hear that Haman has been elevated to position of the prime minister over Persia. And Mordecai goes home wondering, what will become of me? In fact, things go from bad to worse. Because not only is Mordecai not honored, but because Mordecai doesn't want to give his props to Haman, not only is Mordecai's life, but the 15 million Jews in the Persian Empire are in jeopardy. Their lives are in jeopardy because now in 11 months, there will be an edict. The edict has been issued that in 11 months, they're all to be killed. And so this is where they are, and this is where we come at this particular point in time. The question that Mordecai is asking is, and probably the question that, that maybe some of you ask, is, in my doing what was right, did you see that, God? Because there was no honor for me. There was no island for me. There was no governorship for me. I'm just the same. This is the same thing happening day, day in, day. In fact, things have gotten worse. And the question that he asks is, God, do you see? Did you see? Do you know? Do you know the things that I've done? Do you know what? It, does it matter to me? Does it matter to you what happens to me? Does it matter to you that I do what is right? Does it matter to you that in the midst of Persia, I'm seeking to do what is honorable and what, and what is right, but there's no reward for what I do? Do you ever wonder if it's worth it, because there seems to be no reward for the things that you have done for God. You're a parent, and you're trying to faithfully disciple your kids, but the very thing that you're praying for, the opposite thing starts happening in the life of your kid. And you wonder, God, do you, are you, like, do you see that, God? You, you're a mother who's doing your best to be faithful to raise your children, but you're misunderstood and people don't get you, and you've got all of this mommy guilt on you, and you're praying this to God, but it, doesn't, it seems like things are not getting better. And you're wondering, God, does it, even, does it even matter? Is what I do even worth it? You're a house church shepherd, 
and you've been giving your life to people, you've been praying for them, but it seems like nothing that you're praying for is coming to pass. It seems like less and less people are coming, fewer and fewer people are coming, and the people you're praying to come to know Jesus are getting further and further away, and you wonder, is it worth it for me? God, do you see these things? Because it doesn't seem like anyone else sees these things. Do you see it? Does it matter to you? Does it matter that I live for God in the midst of the Persian Empire? Is it worth it for me to do this, or should I just go and and live like the rest of the Persians do? Does it matter what I do for you? You're a Sunday school teacher. You're a a, a youth teacher. You're investing in the lives of people with or without a title. And the question you're asking week in, week out is, if, if people don't understand the things that I'm doing, then does it matter to you? Is it worth it for me to continue to try and do this and to live a life of faithfulness? Does it matter when people at school still make fun of me, when people at work still pass me over for promotions just because I claim the name of Christ? Does it matter? And God, do you see the things that I do? And what the book of Esther tells us that even if everyone else has forgotten, no one else sees, there is a God who sees and knows and remembers and will not forget the things that you do. Begin to see that at play here. But I think the challenging thing, I don't know how many years have passed. It doesn't really say here. I'm going to guess maybe it's been at least a couple years since that deed of saving the king, and he still hasn't been honored in any way for it. I think part of the challenge in trusting God is when we ask, what are you doing? It's not only that God's not pulling through for us, but he's not pulling through at the time we think he ought to pull through. Because we want everything to be done quickly and fast and and rapidly. And if it doesn't happen in that way, we begin to question because we don't like waiting for things. You know this because you hear all of the studies and all the stories and all the people talking about how we love everything fast in our, in our day. Uh, the iPhone 11 is faster than the iPhone 10, and, and this processor is faster than that, and fast food. And, but there are certain places in our culture, in our society, where we're beginning to realize that maybe faster isn't better. Do you see this? When you, you see commercials for fast food joints, like Burger King or McDonald's or Wendy's, we call them the BMW of restaurants, right? Burger King, McDonald's, and Wendy's. You see commercials for them, and you see these burgers which are like, oh, my gosh. Like, that makes me want to leave the comforts of my couch and go to a McDonald's. Not Uber. Not, yeah, Uber Eats is fine. But I want to go there, and I want to eat that sandwich. That's crazy. Look how delicious it looks. And then you go there, and you buy it, and it looks nothing like that. Like that Beef patty is not shining and like glistening with all that stuff. It looks like I've been sitting there for like weeks. This is ridiculous. And they say, well, appearances can be deceiving, especially when it comes to fast food. Here's what we're beginning to realize. Don't be fooled by fast food. Faster doesn't always mean better because fast food is now being replaced by what? By healthy food. Even at fast food joints, they've got these things called impossible burgers, which are impossibly healthy for you, even though they're supposed to taste like fast food. And then you've got these stores like Humble popping up and plant-based foods and vegan fare and vegetarian, all of these things, because people are realizing faster isn't always better. Faster definitely doesn't always mean healthier. And this is important for us to understand because a lot of times we want God to always be working quickly. But he doesn't. He doesn't always work quickly. In fact, for Mordecai, he's been waiting and waiting away. Maybe he's even forgotten, given up hopes that he would ever get promoted. I don't know how this plays out in your life. But I know for a fact that there are times where God doesn't seem to be operating at the speed we want him to operate. God doesn't seem to be honoring those who have honored him. In fact, it seems like those who dishonor God get promoted. This is Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph. He said, I wondered, is it even worth it? When I look at the people of this world, their lives are good, they're healthy, they don't get sick, they don't have any problems at work, they don't have problems with people, everything is going well, and here I am fighting for God's glory, and things are not going well in my life. You ever felt like God had forgotten you? Overlook the things that you did. Maybe he sees other people in here, but not me. Um, I'm going to Dallas this week to do some some, some ministry, and you know, it, I, I have to I have to be uh, thoughtful and wise about where I go because I know that uh, in going somewhere to preach, I'm leaving behind our church and my family and the responsibilities that I have here. I don't come back and say, oh, all of a sudden those things don't matter. These things matter. I still have things to get back to, and so. There, there's, a, there's a cost involved to it. And so um, 
I have to think, uh, and, and, and think a little bit big picture in terms of where I go and where I don't go. But when I was in seminary, when I was a seminary student, um, I would go as much as I could to preaching engagements. And they offered and they said, hey, we'd love for you to come. I would go because I knew that several things would happen. One, um, this would be a great way for me to continue to grow as I take opportunities to serve and to minister in different contexts. It would be great for me to, to practice preaching and counseling and praying and things like that. This is awesome for me to be able to connect with other people and to network with folks and, and to learn from them. And, and in another way, um, sometimes what would happen, usually what would happen, this is kind of the expectation, is that when you go somewhere to minister, um, they'll help with your travel expenses, and then they'll give you a small envelope that's called an honorarium. It's basically their way of saying, thank you for coming, usually have a small amount of money in it. And so I would go and I would preach at these retreats and preach at these gatherings like that. And over the course of, of, of life and in, in ministry, um, there would be times where I would preach at this retreat, and, you know, back in, in those days, it was uh, not uncommon. Four times in a weekend or six times or eight times in a weekend, uh, that's what we would do. We would just preach and then come back, and, and at the end, they would say, hey, thanks for coming, and, and they give this envelope, and we go back home. But I can remember maybe like three times or so where at the end of the retreat, um, they shook my hand. They said, thank you so much for coming. We've been really encouraged and really blessed and they would take me to the airport, and I would get on the airplane. And I wouldn't have gotten anything as a token of appreciation. Now, during a certain point, especially when I was in seminary, uh, seminarians are not synonymous with billionaire. They're very two completely different things. Uh, so I was struggling, especially I was trying to get, in, uh, trying to get married and trying to get engaged. And so um, to give up uh, several days from ministry, in order to go somewhere else to do ministry, there was cost involved in that. And so um, I would go, and I remember, you know, a couple of times sitting on the airplane and saying, hmm, maybe they just forgot to give me something. Maybe they'll mail it to me. Um, and after a week or two weeks or three weeks, I realized, oh, maybe they just forgot, period. <laughs> or maybe they didn't think that it was uh, worth it or they, uh, whatever it is. And all these, like, thoughts are going through my mind. And I remember um, this one, yeah, this one after doing about six messages and going back on the plane. To me, it, was, it wasn't about the money. I wasn't getting rich off of this by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, my accountants were like, you don't even need to declare that in your tax returns. That's like uh, basically like, you know, you go buy a Happy Meal or something like that with it. But to me, it was more the idea, not, it was not about how much, but it was about, God, I, I, feel, like, I feel like I gave my best to these people. I feel like in, in, in leaving my people to come to this group, I wanted to serve them. I wanted to honor them, and I wanted them to see the goodness of God through the word of God and, and to fall in love with Jesus. And it just, feels like, it just feels like they didn't remember or they kind of overlooked these things or that it didn't really matter. And, and so in my moments of tiredness and, and darkness and, and emotional ups and downs and, 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 and the downs, I would say, God... Um, I wonder if all of that really mattered for anything in the grand scheme of things. I wonder if that made any kind of a difference. And I wonder if they saw, if they appreciated or knew the labor of love that it took in order to bring the messages that were brought in. And I remember um, one time that, that happened, and the very next song that I sang was a song um, that we sing often, Christ is Enough. Uh, Christ is enough. I've decided to follow Jesus. And, and there's this, uh, the part that really just started messing with me and, and I, it just kind of haunted as it kind of bounced around in my heart where it says, uh, Christ is my reward. And all of my devotion. That Christ is my reward. Not the recognition of people. Not the whatever X amount that comes in the envelope. Not the, hey, you did a great job, but Christ is my reward. Is it enough to know that even when other people have forgotten or others have not recognized, is it enough for you to believe and to know that Jesus saw and that he appreciates and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Is that enough for you or is that not enough? Is it enough for you to really believe and say that Christ is my reward and there will be a reward coming one day? 
Some way, somehow, God does not forget the things that you do for him. Do you believe that in your heart? And is that enough for you to say, God, I could do this, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, because Christ, my reward, will never fail me. Is he enough for you? house church shepherd as you serve and as you give and as you labor and you want that appreciation is christ enough for you mother father grandparent whatever it is as you serve as you do your work for the lord praise team leader when no one praises you thanks you gives you plaudits or praise or popularity or whatever it might be is that enough for you to say jesus the love of christ is all in all and he's the reason and that's all that i need is he enough for you to stay in the midst of the Persian Empire and to live for God even when it seems like no one else is doing that. Is Christ enough? Because even when everybody else forgets, he remembers and he remembers. It's the first thing that we have to realize. But the second thing, second thing is huge, is that God is always at work, always at work. Even when you don't think he is, God is always at work working for his people, his promises, his purposes. So then we fast forward here back to the literary present. What's happening here? Mordecai has been forgotten all these years. He goes to bed that night as he does every other night of his life. Haman goes to bed excited because tomorrow morning, the crack of dawn, I'm going to go into the palace and I'm going to wait for the king to invite me in in order that I could ask for Mordecai to be killed finally. Haman goes to sleep, Mordecai goes to sleep, Esther goes to sleep, the entire Persian Empire goes to sleep, and everyone is sleeping, <laughs> except for one person. Chapter 6, verse 1, that night the king could not sleep. The king who had feasted on the bounty of Esther's feast who had drunken alcohol, which is a depressant, mind you, that makes you sleepy, could not sleep that night. And so in the midst of his sleep, he says, I need something to help me go to sleep. When our girls were little, when Manny was little, I used to play a podcast of my sermons to help her go to sleep. (laughs) Because I figure if it works on Sunday, (laughs) then it's got to work during the rest of the week. I don't know what you do to help yourself fall asleep. But here's what the king says. I need something boring. I need something boring to be read. Come read to me the book of the Chronicles of King Xerxes. This is basically an official record of all the court documents and all the things, that, all the, the, the exploits of the king's deeds. And so they read it to him. Maybe he wanted to kind of stroke his ego. Maybe he wanted to be bored. I don't know what he wants to do. But, but time is going on. Hours are ticking by. Minutes are ticking by. And the guys are reading this stuff and they're wondering, why is he not falling asleep? Because by this time, the sun is starting to come up. Night is giving way to dawn. And he's still reading, but something gets the attention of the king. What is it? This guy Mordecai saves King Xerxes from assassination. And so he's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. What do we do for that cat, Mordecai? What do we do for him? We give him him like land. We give him a title. We give him a home. What do we give him? They're like, we do nothing for him. He's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Well, we've got to do something for him. So he's like, uh, who, who's out? is there anyone out there? I want to, who, we need to do something. Who's out there? Just so happens that Haman has woken up to go to the king to ask the king to kill Mordecai. And he's like, the, the attendant's like, well, H- Haman is out here. You want to talk to Haman? So Haman is excited. He's like, dude, the king wants me. It's kind of like these, these, like, these comedy TV shows where the guy and girl are going to break up. Well, he wants to break up. She doesn't. And I got something to tell you. I got something to tell you. You go first. No, you go first. You go first. Okay, you go first. And then, so here, oh, you go first, king. Okay, fine. I was wondering, I want to honor somebody. I want to I really, like, someone that is so near and dear to my heart, someone who means a lot, who's done so much for the kingdom. What would you do to honor that person? Haman's like, dude. (laughs) Uh, Was anyone else eating at the table with king and queen but me? 
Was anyone else invited to dinner tonight with the king and queen but me? Are you feeling pretty? He's like, who else could the king be talking about besides me? He's like, I don't need more money. I don't need anything else. All I, I just want more power. So here, well, with all due respect, king, if I may, perhaps what you can do is put a robe on such a person. Not just any robe, but the robe the king has worn that's immediately identifying that person with the king. And, and, and a horse, a royal, not just any horse, but a horse that the king has rode, the one that has your royal crest on it, r- let him ride on that thing. That's basically, he's saying, let him ride in Air Force One. This is his way of saying, I am a affili- I'm latching myself to you. And then get one of your highest people, positions of honor, and have him walk that horse around and say, dude, ain't nobody that the king loves more than this guy, nobody more powerful, nobody more honorable than this guy, have him walk around the entire street. And Xerxes is like, dude, Haman, great idea. You are the man. (laughs) You are the man to lead Mordecai. (laughs) He's like, what the nasty. (laughs) Now, what was it that you wanted to say to me, Haman? (laughs) I'll go do it right away, king. Wow. Wow. And so all these years of waiting for Mordecai, all of a sudden, Mordecai's doing what he's always doing. He's trying to be faithful at the city gates, at the royal gates. And then here comes Haman. Haman's like, Mordecai, stand up, come with me. And Mordecai is mortified. He's like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? I've seen that he built a gallows 75 feet high. What is he doing? And so Mordecai's like, security, call 911. And Haman's like, nah, be quiet, stand up. And he gets the royal robe and he puts it on. Mordecai's like, what is happening? He's like, get on, get on that horse. But that's the king's horse. You sure I'm allowed to get on the horse? And then Haman is walking Mordecai around on this horse saying, this is the man that the king loves to honor. And all around Persia, the people are like, dude, isn't he the one that was not respecting Haman? Isn't he the one that caused him to say, we're going to kill all the Jews in 11? What in the world is going on? This huge plot twist, because God has not forgotten the people of God, even when it seems like he has, and God is always at work for the sake of his people and his promises and his purposes. The crazy thing about this, why do you think the king of all people in the empire could not sleep? Well, it says in the Greek translation of this passage, chapter 6, verse 1, it says literally, it says, God took the sleep from Xerxes that night. (laughs) This seemingly insignificant event, oh, I just have insomnia tonight, turns out to be for the deliverance of a man who in a few hours was supposed to be impaled upon Haman's gallows because God was looking after his people. Isn't it crazy how what seems to be disjointed, circumstantial, oh, that just coincidental happenings end up working together for the purposes of God? It was a queen who decided that one day that I don't want to dance before the king And so she gets banished. It was a king who says, I want to call for thousands of people to come. And out of those thousands, just one Jewish orphan girl rises up to become the queen of Persia. Just so happens that she has an uncle who also happens to be a Jew who sits at the gate and he overhears an assassination plot. Coincidentally, Unlike any other time in the Persian Empire, he does not get rewarded right away, but he has to wait and languish and wait and languish for years until this fateful night when the king just cannot happen to sleep. And it just so happens that what he wants done, he doesn't want, hey, bring me a book of sheep so that I can count them. Bring me some other book. It's just the chronicles of my reign, and it just so happens that that night, What's being read is the passage of Mordecai. And it just so happens that that morning, Haman just happened to be right there. Just so happened that Haman, in his desire for power, gives this issue, gives this idea to the king. And all of these things that seem to be so coincidental in the hands of God providentially 
working to save the Jews eventually so that God's promise would be proven faithful. There are a lot of times in our lives, there are a lot of events in our lives, there are a lot of situations in our lives where we feel like, wow, this doesn't make any sense. But do you believe in the Old Testament scene here, what the New Testament makes explicit in Romans 8, 28, that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Even when you're sleeping, Mordecai, God is working for the sake of his people, including you, for the sake of his promises, and for the sake of his purposes, even robbing sleep from the life of a king. Doesn't make any sense. A seemingly insignificant detail that causes everything to flip on its head. That's the providential hand of God that's at work in your life also. Things that you thought, why in the world am I here? Why in the world am I at this place? How did I end up in this place? Why am I here at this? Last week at our, at our Alpha service, there was, you know, there was a, a group of four people who were just guests. They just happened to come in there. And at the end of the worship service, um, this one young lady in her 20s, she was visiting from, uh, from the West Coast, um, was just crying, just weeping, weeping, weeping the entire time, crying the entire time. So afterwards, I went to say hello to them, and uh, we got th- into this long, engaged conversation about what uh, is going on in their lives. And they're like, you know, it just, it, it, it had to be that our friend just happened to know this church and said, let's come here today um, because this is the message that uh, I've been waiting to hear from God. And it, it was about fasting, it was about praying, it was about waiting, it's about God's timing. And they were here to go to a conference and then go to Disney World. They felt that they should go to church before they go. That even the insignificant details of your life in God's providential hand are working to accomplish his purposes. There's no accidents in life. What the world would say is coincidence is God's providence, not just the good things, but even the hard things of your life. Even the years of waiting to be recognized and honored, God using these things to accomplish his purposes. I tried this illustration in the morning, and I don't know if it was effective, but I'll try again. Uh, There was a retreat years ago that I was uh, preaching at um, up in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And as I sat down to preach that last message, that last evening message, as I opened up my Bible and put it down, I happened to catch catch a glimpse of, of myself, and I realized that my zipper on my pants was all the way down. I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is dreadfully painful and very embarrassing, and no one's going to listen to the Word of God because they're thinking about my zipper. And so uh, I couldn't stand up. It would be, you know, whatever I did would have been completely distracting at that point in time. And so I said, guys, um, yeah, I think that the Lord really wants to speak this message into your heart. And I want you to get it. So why don't we spend some time praying? (laughs) Really preparing your heart. (laughs) Say, Lord, would you remove all of the weeds in order that the seed of the word of God would fill my heart? Let's let's start praying. And then I turned around. (laughs) And I came back and I was ready to pray. But I when I looked up. People sitting in chairs, and there were some people like on their, on their knees praying. And they're just like, God, we repent of a heart at heart. I was like, oh, my, that's, I didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> like, God, we need you, Lord, we need you. There's a message that he has to speak. Lord, would you bring it through him? And they're like praying. And well, it's supposed to be like a 30-second pull-up-the-zipper prayer. <laughs> like this, like five, six minutes. They're like, go on, like spirit of God falling on them. And people getting not, I'm just kidding, not like that. When I thought about that, it wasn't, and I don't don't remember the message, it probably wasn't a great message, but for some people, for some people, because of that extra five minutes of prayer, the Lord may have spoken into their hearts in a way that they really needed to. And I, I, I learned that day that God is sovereign over all things, even faulty zippers on pants that you thought should have been the least of our concerns, but God is sovereign over all of the details of our lives. I know that was maybe not very helpful, but if you think about your life, (laughs) 
Think about your life and the situations in life. The failures that the world would consider failures. The time you got kicked out of that program or you didn't make it into that school or you didn't get that job or that rejection or that person you wanted to marry that ended up saying no. All of these things coupled with all of the good things of our lives, all part of the work of God. He doesn't do things quickly, but he does them well. He will never fail. He never forgets you. As I, my wife and I, Olivia, celebrated 13, our 13th anniversary, and as I was thinking about that this week, as I thought about this, this passage that I'm meditating on and, and thinking about, um, I just see the hand of God's providence in a similar way that one of my best friends, Justin, was serving at a church up in Virginia many years ago, and, um, and things started getting, um, there started be, being some, some challenges within that church, and, and so kind of the, the writing was on the wall, and so he said, hey, uh, is it possible, is there, you know, if I continue studies down in Orlando, is there a position I can, I can serve at your church? And we were like, yeah, you know, we can... Uh, we can have you lead worship or do whatever it is that you want to do and come down and do that. And so for, he came down, and for about three years, he served as our worship pastor and did an amazing job. And, and some of our praise leaders to this day grew up under his training and under his ministry. And, and he had a, a younger sister uh, who graduated from college and went to that same church, and it was a church her parents were at. And though people started leaving, she did her best to hold down the fort and tried to keep the church afloat and and, and, and things got harder, and things got harder. And there's one point where she really wanted to grow, and one summer she wanted to go on a mission trip, but their church wasn't in any position to go on missions. But here we were. We were sending a, a group of about 10 to Belize, uh, where I was going to go, and then a group of three to, uh, to, to China, where Justin was going to go. And she said, can I, can I go with you guys to, to, to China? And he said, sure, come on down. And so uh, as she was preparing to go to China, our contacts in China got in trouble. They got compromised. The police shut them down. And they said, hey, I, we, we can't allow you guys to come. And so we said, okay, let's have those three come and, and join this group that's going to Belize. And so the 10 became 13 or 14. And, and leading that team was this, like, really handsome youth pastor, very charismatic, and this great guy. <laughs> and um, this outsider... Uh, from from Virginia came and she fell in love with him and he fell in love with her and and then a few months later <laughs> a few months later uh, we started dating long distance and for about two and a half years we did that whole dance and then uh, 13 years ago we got married but all of these things uh, Justin was moving out in in the summer of 2006 and in fall of 2006 uh, Olivia and I got married so as Justin left as my roommate Olivia came in as my roommate and all of just the, the hand of God through it all, insignificant and seemingly meaningless coincidences show that God is working through every chapter of our lives, through the good chapters, through the sad chapters, through the great times, and through the hard times, in order that his sovereign purposes for his people would come to pass to show that God is always faithful to his promises. Here's Haman. He's second in command. You would think that what he, is, he says, his word is the law when it comes to Persia. Come morning, Mordecai's a goner. His life is hanging in the balance, hanging by a thread. But God says there's a greater king over and against the kings of this world. And the question is, can you trust that? Some trust in chariots, some trust in men, but we put our hope in the name of the Lord. That's our God. God has not abdicated his throne, not to Xerxes, not to Esther, not to Haman, not to anybody else, and he hasn't done so today either. To whomever the powers that be in this world may think they are, our God is still sovereign over all of the affairs of human history, and he's working out and accomplishing his purposes. How can we be so sure? How can we know to what extent can we trust God? Here's how far he would go. He said, on the darkest day of human history, I'll take you to a cross, to a gallows, if you will, where the Son of God was hung and was crucified, and all around the faithful remnant of God said, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Wasn't he supposed to be the one? What good is a tortured and mangled and crucified carpenter Messiah? What good is he? God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Left to die on the cross. 
fact, death came so quickly that they didn't even need to break his legs because he was gone. Pierced with a spear, blood and water flowing out of him. All of that, the fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies of God. He was forsaken so that you and I will never be forgotten by him. Do you understand? It's not if God forsook him, then he will forsake me also. No, it was the great exchange that happened at the cross. Because he was forgotten, you and I will never be forgotten because he took the punishment that you and I deserve in order that we might have the wrath of God removed so that all that's left is the love that God has for his son given unto his people. This is our great hope. This is how far he would go to show that he's committed to you and to me, to his promises, to his purposes, and to his people. God, what are you doing? Whenever you ask, what are you doing? We look to the cross, and you will hear God say, here's what I'm doing, far more than you could ever ask or imagine. That's our confidence. That's our hope. That's our God. Let's pray together. Let's pray and spend a moment just committing our hearts to trust in this God. Do you feel like God has forgotten you? Do you feel like God has abandoned you? That all the things that you've been doing, you feel like it's not bearing any fruit. You feel like God is distant from you. The promise of God is that he sees you. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are set on him, whose eyes are set on him. God sees you. He doesn't forget you. Is that enough for you? Christ, your reward. Lord, I need you. For others of us, maybe we've been doubting and questioning because God hasn't been working as quickly as we thought he ought to be working, or maybe because there has been disappointment in our lives. All of the brokenness, all of the baggage, all of the delays, all of the waiting are all part of the sovereign and providential will of God in our lives. Not that he, or, not that he wanted bad things to happen, again, but that God will use even the sinfulness of our choices and the choices of others against us, that God will redeem in order that a bigger picture, a greater picture, of healing and hope could come to this world through you. So can we pray for just a a minute or so, asking the Lord that he would help us to trust you, to trust God, to be faithful to him. Let's pray like that for a couple minutes, a couple moments, and then we'll continue to worship through a song of response. Let's pray honestly, sincerely, in faith as we commit our hearts to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that your word in Hebrew says, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Father, we pray that you would give us that hope and that confident assurance that you have not forgotten us. You see us, that you have ways of rewarding us far beyond what we know. That's not why we do things for you. We do it because you've loved us our obedience to you is our response of love but we also know that we never lose when we give to you we never lose when we obey you that you always have ways of honoring your people and so Lord help us to be faithful help us to be faithful to trust and to cling to you may the gospel be ever beautiful and real to us and may the message of the cross never be lost in our hearts we thank you so much we love you because you've loved us first Pray these things in Jesus' name.